I remember singing that last song as a freshman at uh, David Lipscomb College, I think it was, back in the day. And I actually sang that with some friends of mine in a talent show. Salvation has been brought down. Wow. I know we have a lot of visitors this morning, and um, I guess for that reason, our singing sounds better this morning. Sounds good. So I've just thought to myself, everybody has to come back next Sunday, (laughs) and the Sunday after that, you just have to place membership, or if you're uh, off at college, come back every Sunday. We have some of our college folks back. We have family visiting. Uh, wherever you're visiting from, thank you for being here. You have, uh, you've made our singing even that much richer this morning, and, um, and I've just, I just think you ought to be back next Sunday as well, and every Sunday thereafter. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. In our study in Hebrews, we're in chapter 11. We've been in chapter 11. I don't know how much longer we'll be in chapter 11, but a little bit longer. We've got some more folks I want us to talk about, but we're going to finish up with Abraham this morning. The author, the author is encouraging his, his readers because they, they've undergone persecution. They've started this journey with Jesus. They put their faith and their trust in Jesus as Messiah. And because of that, we don't know everything that they were facing, but they were coming up against some persecution Maybe their family, maybe their friends, the community around them. Maybe they're, they're being ostracized. Why are you following this guy from Jesus? He died on a cross like a common thief. For whatever reason, they're, they're tempted to turn around, to, to stop this journey with Jesus, to maybe go back to Judaism, to go back maybe to, to nothing. And the Hebrew writer is saying, Keep living by faith. Don't turn back. Stay until your final breath, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you can't understand it, even when you're opposed or ridiculed. Don't abandon your faith. It will be worth it in the end. Chapter 11, he's given us a long list of people, people in the past who have faithfully persevered. Even though they didn't receive the promises, they they stayed with it. We've been talking about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and on and on in chapter 11. Abraham is mentioned, by the way, more than any other Old Testament character in the New Testament. I think some 74 times. And so the author here in chapter 11 gives Abram Abraham a little more ink than he does everybody else, and rightfully so, because he is the father of all those who believe, the father of the faithful. Abraham believed God. He believed God when he said he would make him a great nation. He believed when he said that your descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the sea or the dusts of the earth the stars in the sky. He and Sarah both believed God when they said that they would have a son, even though Sarah was barren and past the age of childbearing. And the Bible says that Abraham was as good as dead. 
They believed and they lived by faith. And sure enough, they did live to see the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham was about 100 years old. Sarah was 90. And God gave them a son. They had their one, their only son, Isaac. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. We want to just highlight a few things that God is doing in the life of Abraham. Get a fuller context of what the Hebrew writer is, is sharing with us this morning. Appreciate the reading uh, that Cole gave us this morning. In Genesis chapter 12, while still in Ur of the Chaldeans, God promised to make Abraham a great nation, but he did not tell him how. There, in fact, there is no mention of any offspring when God first gives him the promise. But later in Genesis chapter 12, after arriving in the land of Canaan, God promised to give Abraham offspring, but he didn't tell him how. He didn't tell him how this was going to unfold. Genesis chapter 13, God gave Abraham the extent of the offspring. He says, they're going to be as, many, as numerous as the dust of the earth. That sounds like a lot, of, a lot of children, doesn't it? A lot of offspring. In Genesis chapter 15, when God cuts a covenant with Abraham, God tells Abraham for the very first time, the offspring would come from his body. That's why in Genesis chapter 16, since Sarah was barren, Abraham had a son named Ishmael through Sarah's handmaiden. Her name was Hagar. But that was not God's plan. That's not the way God was going to work it out. In Genesis chapter 17, at the covenant of circumcision, we're told for the very first time that the offspring would also come from Sarah, not from Hagar. In Genesis chapter 18, the promise is finally revealed to Sarah that she would bear a son. You remember she laughed. She laughed at the thought of being as old as she was and that she was going to bear a son. But let's not be too hard on her. Abraham also laughed in chapter 17 when he was told the same news. He's like, God, I, are you kidding? I mean, I, I just can't believe it. This is, this is crazy. And so Abraham laughed as well. And so that's what God said. You'll name the child Isaac because that's what Isaac means. It means laughter. And so every time you call his name, you'll remember that this was impossible for you, but I made it happen. So don't miss how many years, we talked about it last week, for that promise to be fulfilled. From the age of 75 years old, when God first came to Abram and made the promise, until now the promise of a descendant of Abraham to come and to be a blessing for the whole world. A couple of thousand years until Jesus Christ was born. That's the point in the second section regarding Abraham here in, in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, all these people died in faith without receiving the promises. We looked at that last week. But they died believing the promises, never receiving them, but still living by faith. And the Bible says, as a result of that, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not ashamed of them 
because they trusted him. They put their faith in him. Which brings us to our text this morning. The reason I wanted to review all of those promises leading up to that one promise, Isaac, is because of what God required of Abraham considering his son. Let's read the text again before we dive back into into Genesis. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning of verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So as we approach the story this morning, as much as possible, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's sandals. You know this is a test. You know how the story ends, right? But Abraham knows neither. He doesn't know that this is a test, and he doesn't know how all of this is going to unfold. All he knows is the promise of God, and he knows the command of God. And in his mind, surely there was a great chasm between both of those things. He knows the promise that it is through Isaac that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's through Isaac, the son of promise, that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He knows that God has made that promise, but now God has given him a command. And the promise and the command don't fit together at least not in his mind. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. Forget about how the story ends. Try to imagine the ordeal. Think of your own son. Think of your own daughter. Would you have obeyed God like Abraham did? God had called him decades ago to go to a country that he would show him. Abraham left. He went, even though he didn't know where he was going. He packed up, and he did what God said. God promised him he would make Abraham a great nation, even though at first he didn't tell Abraham how he was going to do it. Descendants, as numerous as the sand, as numerous as the stars. Genesis 15, Abraham complained a little bit to God. He said, are my descendants going to come from one of my servants so that they can carry on my name and carry on my my household? And God says, no, 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 Abraham, that's not how we're going to do this. Your seed is going to come from your body. That's how it's going to happen. And he's like, really? Because I'm really old. I'm really old right now. Sarah, she's pretty old. She's past the age. And God says, Look at the stars, Abraham. Look at the sky. That's how many your descendants are going to be, and they're going to come from your own body. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. He believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. And so then he waits for a few years. 
He listens to his wife, Sarah, who suggested that he father a child through her handmaiden. Her name was Hagar. After all, it's obvious. It's obvious to her that she's not going to have a child. She's been barren all these years. If it were going to happen, it would have already happened. And so she says, no, 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 go in and, and father a child. And that's how God's going to work all of this out. And so without consulting God, without consulting God, they just went ahead and did this. And Abraham, he fathers a child named Ishmael. And for several years, I guess Abraham's thinking to, to himself, God did it. This is how it's going to work. I fathered a child. And so this is how all the nations are going to be blessed through Ishmael. But God said, Abraham, the son of promise will not come from Hagar. It will not be through Ishmael. The son of promise will come through Sarah. That's really what, um, what the word means, the son of promise his only begotten son, his son of promise. Abraham had other, other sons, right? Well, he obviously had Ishmael. He also had other sons through uh, a woman named Keturah. So Isaac is not his only son, but Isaac is his only son of promise. The same is to be said of Jesus, God's only begotten. The word in Greek is monogonase. It's Mono, it's only, it's, it's solo, and ganes being born or, or begotten. And it has to do with the one and only son of promise. Isaac is a unique son because he's not the only son of Abraham, but he's the only son of promise. He's unique in that regard. And it would be through Isaac that God would fulfill the promise. So Isaac is born. Can you imagine the joy can you imagine the joy in their tent when Sarah finds out that she's pregnant? A woman of her age? How could it be? It could only be because God said it would be, and they trusted. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. The promise is fulfilled because God had promised, and God makes good on his promises. And he swore by himself, and he's a God who cannot lie. Look at Genesis chapter 21. This records the birth of Isaac. Genesis 21, the word of the Lord. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised. So it's clear now. I mean, God, God has finally done it. We tried to do it our own way. We, we messed up, and, and, that, and that's causing problems even to this day. But now God has finally done it, just like he said. Everything is going to be okay now. Now we can move the story forward. We can fast forward the narrative, and we know that now it's through Isaac that all of these things are going to happen. Isaac, he's going to have children, and they're going to have children, and many, many more things. And, and, and we, now we can get on with the story, and everything works out right. Everybody lives happily ever after, right? 
not so fast. Who he's talking about? We're not talking about Ishmael. You're not going to go find Ishmael. He's already been sent away. No, Abraham, take your only son, Monogonese son, the son of promise, the unique one and only son of promise. Take that son, Isaac, and you take him to Mount Moriah on a mountain that I will show you. By the way, the chronicler, um, I think in 2 Chronicles, tells us exactly where Mount Moriah is. Do you know where Mount Moriah is? It's Jerusalem. It's the city mount there in Jerusalem where the city of David would be built years later. Take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering in the Levitical system that would come years later, the burnt offering was an offering for sin. Unlike, unlike many of the sacrifices, the, the worshiper would bring a lamb or a goat or a bull and they would sacrifice that animal. And then part of that meat was given to the priest as his portion. And then the other part uh, would be given to the worshiper so that he and his family could eat, and oftentimes it was enough where they would throw a party there in the temple courts, and they would share a meal together with friends and with family. The, the entrails and the fat, all of that would be, would be burned up on the altar um, to, given to God, but not the sin offering. The sin offering was completely consumed. So what God has called Abraham to do with his son Isaac, he says, take your son and offer him as a burnt offering. He's not just going to take the life of his son. He's going to burn that body up as an offering to God. Let's read on. Verse 4, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. Notice he didn't say anything to Sarah about this. Abraham's not stupid. He gets up early in the morning. He doesn't hesitate. I want you to notice that. He doesn't stop and he doesn't think. I, I, I think to myself, lying there next to Sarah that night, what must have gone through his mind knowing what he was going to have to get up and do the next morning? He gets up early. You know, we've we, we, we got to get on with this thing. Immediate obedience to God. He doesn't question God. He doesn't say, why, God, why would, you, why would you call me to do this? You promised this, and now you're commanding this, and those two things are incongruent. They just don't match up in my mind. But he doesn't say that. Very early in the morning, he gets up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, I think that's important. It's about a three days journey from where they are in, in around Beersheba up to what would be present-day Jerusalem on the Mount of Moriah. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Oh, what must have been going through his mind? His heart must have been racing. Now I can see it. It's in view. We've started off. We've journeyed a day or two, and now we're in the third day of our journey, and, and I can see it. 
Every step brings me another step closer to doing this incredible thing that God has called me to do. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. That's very interesting. He says, you stay here. The boy and I will go and worship. I think it's interesting that he calls it worship. Because listen to me. Whenever you obey God, that's worship. So you and I think what we're, what we're here doing this morning is worship, and it is. We, we've gathered here in the name of Jesus. We've sung some songs. Um, we, we've, we've gathered around the table. We've remembered Jesus. All of that's part of our worship. But Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service. When you obey God, even when you don't understand, even when you don't know how, even when the promise and the command don't seem to go together, you obey, you trust. Obedience is always an act of worship to God. And so Abraham gets up early. He says, we are going to go worship. He says to his servants, we're going to go on the mountain. We're going to worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, now stop and think about it. Abraham knows what God has called him to do. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, the one and only son of promise, the one that you waited 25 years for, really the one that you waited all of your life for. But from the time I made the promise until I, I, I made it happen, 25 years has gone by. And now history would tell us, some, some commentators say that Isaac was around 14, maybe 15 years of age at this time. Some Jewish historians and, and history says that he may have been in his early 20s, and one says he may have even been as old as 37 years of age right now. I, I, I don't know. But he's not a little boy. He's not a toddler. When, when we read the text, it says the lad or the boy. At minimum, Isaac is at least about 15 years of age. Abraham knows what he's going to have to do, and he says, we will go and worship and we will come back to you. What is Abraham thinking in his mind? I know the promise. God has promised through Isaac that we would have many descendants and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the promise. And does God keep his promise? Absolutely. But here's the command. Kill your son. The son through whom all of this is going to happen. God, I don't understand. You and I are very familiar with resurrection. Not so with Abraham. Had Abraham ever seen a, a resurrection, someone come back from the dead? I'm going to say no. But Abraham, knowing that God is a keeper of his promises, he begins to weigh this out. <laughs> he begins to think to himself, 
God has promised me this, and I know that God is going to keep his promise. God is always faithful to do what he says he's going to do. He promised us a son, and against all odds, it happened. He kept his promise, and I believe, I trust that he's going to keep this promise. So now he tells me to take my son and sacrifice him. So Abraham reasoned in his mind, God must be able to raise the dead. <laughs> God, God must be able to bring him back to life. How else can it happen? How else can I follow the command of God and yet God keep true to his promise? So he reasoned in his mind that God must be able to, to bring him back from the dead. Let's read on. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here. Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God, we've, we've, we've got everything we need. Uh, Father, Abraham, we have everything we need. <laughs> we've got the fire. We've got the wood. But there's no sacrifice. There's, there's no lamb. There's no animal. Where, where is it, Father? And, God, and, and Abraham says, God will provide it. Do you see the faith of this man? That's why he's the father of, of, of all the faithful. He Somehow in his mind, he, he reasons and he trusts that God is going to provide. He's going to provide a, a sacrifice, and I'm not going to have to kill my son, or I'm going to have to kill my son, and God's going to raise him up from the dead. Because that's the only way God can be a keeper of his promises. Father, we have everything we need, but, but where's the sacrifice? God himself will provide. You, you've heard the name Jehovah Jireh? Jehovah Jireh, that's where this comes from. God will provide. Last week, we talked about uh, El Shaddai. He says, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai, I am the God who is sufficient. And now we see Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And provide he did. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I, I, I just want to stop there for a second. Abraham is not two, three, four years old. He's not a toddler. He's not a young boy. At, at minimum, he's around 15 years of age. I'm thinking, especially as old as Abraham is, um, I think Isaac could outrun him if he, if he so desired. I'm thinking he could beat him in a wrestling match. Let's arm wrestle, Dad. Let's see, let's see about this. We give Abraham all of this credit for his faith, and rightfully so. 
But I'm going to submit to you this morning, Isaac, Isaac had to be a man, a young man full of faith. Listen to me. This is my words, not the Lord, okay? I, Rodney, say this to you, not the Lord. Think about it. Abraham binds his son and lays him on the altar, lays him on the wood. Do you you think that he knows what's going to happen now? Do you think that Abraham just tied his son up and put him up there without any any conversation at all? This This is what I think happened. Father, we have the fire. We have the wood, but but where's the sacrifice? Isaac, I don't really know how to tell you this, but God has asked me to sacrifice you. God has asked me to give your life as a sacrifice to him. I, I, I don't know why. I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's what God has asked of me. And so Isaac, my only son, my son of promise, I'm asking you to trust your father. I'm asking you to trust me as I am trusting God. I think that's the conversation. Because Abraham ties up his son places him on the wood, on the altar. We we don't hear of any uh, fighting. We don't hear of any discussion. Isaac willingly lays his life down on the altar. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. I can just see him drop the knife. Here, Here I am. Here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Can you imagine? (laughs) Can you imagine the relief? I believe with every fiber of my being, Abraham was ready to slay his son and then to light that wood on fire. Why would he do that? Because God commanded him to do that. And so he obeyed. The Lord provides. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket, He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Why would God ask that of Abraham? Unless we get too excited about that, 
We can't be too hard on God calling for someone to sacrifice his one and only son, can we? That's the message of the gospel. That is the gospel story because that's exactly what God did for us. But here's the difference. God didn't stop the soldiers from driving the nails into the hands of Jesus or in his feet. God didn't stop the soldiers from thrusting the spear into his side. His son died as a sacrifice of atonement for us. And that's why at the end of verse 19 there in Hebrews, it says that Abraham received his son back from the dead. Literally, the word there is he received him back as a type. Isaac is a type, and the word that is used there is the word that we get our word parable from. He is literally a parable for us, for, for, uh, for Abraham, if you will. One, one writer uh, even says that in John chapter 8, when Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. But that's exactly what he's referring to. Because Isaac was a parable. He was Jesus in parable form. Isn't that beautiful? Isaac was a type of Jesus. Some of the parallels seem rather obvious, but, but think about these for just for a second. God also had one and only son, his only begotten, a son whom he loved. The son was sacrificed as an offering to God. See, burnt, burnt offerings were offerings for sin, and the offering of Christ on the cross was for sin. Not his sin, but for our sin. I mentioned it earlier. Notice the three days that it took Abraham and Isaac to get to the mountain. It was also three days that Jesus was dead before God received him back. Isaac carried the wood that he was going to be sacrificed on. Jesus carried his own cross to Mount Calvary. The story of Isaac has a substitutionary, uh, a sacrificial ram that would take Isaac's place. There was no one. There was no thing to take Jesus' place. He was the substitute, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Let me read to you again from Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, speaking of this great man. Romans 4, beginning of verse 18. No, beginning of verse 21. But now a righteousness... No, that's the wrong chapter. Chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead 
since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. And that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That, my brothers and sisters, is the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Abraham is called the father of faith, and rightfully so. But it struck me as I was thinking about this this past week, Isaac had to be a man of faith as well. He trusted his father to sacrifice him. Exactly what God did when Jesus trusted his father. Even though he said, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. That's the gospel. And what God is asking us in response to that gospel is to surrender our life to him. To just obey, even though we don't understand. Well, why do I have to do this, God? Or why do I have to be baptized? Or why do I have to, you know, go to church? Why do I? No, no, no. you don't have to understand all of it. What, what you do need to do is to be obedient to it. And what I have found in my own life is that when I take a step of obedience, then I begin to understand more about why God has asked me to do what he's asked me to do. If I'm always standing back here saying, God, I don't understand, I don't know why, then I remain in that place. But when I take a step in faith and I take a step of obedience, God seems to reveal more of himself to me. Oh, that's why. Now I see, now I know, but it only comes when I surrender my life to him. It will only come when you surrender your life to him. So my question to you this morning is, what is it that you're holding back? What is it that you have not surrendered to God? Whatever it is this morning, I'm asking you to lay it on the altar, give it to Christ, Christ, 